Welcome to Essie's Hour of Love. Episode 49. <laughs> that was epic. Don't you think of um uh Schmidt off the new girl? Did you ever watch the new girl? Yeah. And he's like 29. <laughs> well, now I am what am. 49. I, that. <laughs> I love it. I did have a mild heart attack this week when you said, oh, well, maybe one of us can just record the intro without the other. Yeah. I, I was like, do I have to do the welcome to Essie's hour of love alone? <laughs> okay. Get over it's like it. It's going to be sad. <laughs> you wouldn't do it. You'd just be like, hey, welcome. Essie's hour of love here. Grace. And now it's starting. <laughs> anyway. So this week, episode 49, super exciting. Um, we have Jonathan Asley. He, this was a new one for us. His um, agent reached out, which has never happened before. Definitely didn't believe it was a real email at first. Um, but he reached out and yeah. wanted to tell us a little so, bit about yeah, it. Yeah, so Scout, his agent, reached out to us. And he is a leading midlife date dating coach. But he also has become very aware that one of the big, um, I think, problems that people face today is this idea of lack of self-worth um which sort of ties into self-regard and self-love so he wanted to dedicate his time to write a book and call it what the heck is self-love anyway uh which is available on amazon and also on his um, website but which we'll put all on the our website um for you to check out um he's a special promo on the one yeah 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 and it's also available on amazon so he um yeah he's uh kind of like a middle-aged guy and he has gone through many different life experiences that uh i think guided him in this self-love direction and we were really interested to hear what what was sort of like i guess the backstory to then want to write this book and yep. want to be an advocate of self-love so that's that's the journey that I feel we like you have to on. hit a pretty solid point in your own self-worth and love to right. to then share it with others exactly yeah or it's or you could sort of go the other direction not that he did this where you you sort of just uh, don't do it at all oh. and then like become <laughs> like the expert in it. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so I check him out at um, on Twitter at Jonathan Asley. Jonathan is spelled J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N and Asley, A-S-L-A-Y. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and um, enjoy. The book is www.jonathanasley.com backslash love. Sweet. We're really good at this, guys. Yes, we're so good at <laughs> <laughs> And uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, it would have just passed. But tom- while we're recording this, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. We're very excited. <laughs> and of course, Jimmy and Nancy, thank you so much for doing everything you do for the podcast. And we're very thankful for you. Bye, guys. Bye. Loving talk all about that but i am yes self-love there it is we've got it in front of us too (laughs) oh okay great great grace has marked the shit up of this (laughs)
Uh-oh, I better remember what I wrote. <laughs> Don't worry, she will. Okay. Uh, Just so, recite it for me. So, so there was um, a moment around your turning 40, <clears throat> and it triggered a thought for me. I remember very clearly, like, my dad's 40th, and um, things weren't, you know, that was actually when my parents were getting a divorce and things were pretty murky at the time. And I look back now, sometimes I just turned, I, I not just, a couple of years ago, I turned 30. And the amount I thought about it when I was 29 was yeah. very surprising to me. So I would, and then I was like, oh, I can't even imagine what this is going to be like when I'm 39 turning 40. And it wasn't about like getting old. It was more like what I thought my life was going to be. At, at yes. this point, right? Yeah. So I would love you to take us back to when you were 38 and you're about to sort of go into 40. And so sort of what were you thinking where life was going to take you? Because I have a feeling it was. Can wasn't. I even go back further than that and bring yeah, you to there? Please. Yeah, please. Okay. You know, it's interesting because I was raised uh, in the baby boom generation, the tail end of the baby boom generation. And so my parents were products of the World War II generation, if you will. And there was one mantra my folks kept saying to me was, you know, after, you know you're gonna go, after high school, you're gonna go to college. And it was like really drilled in my head because I, I think their generation was get a high school diploma was the big thing. Mm. So getting a college degree was a big deal. So I heard that over and over. And of course, I, well, not of course, um, I graduated high school. Uh, I took one semester off and was a ski bum, and then I went four-year college. So, and had, taking uh, a gap semester—that wasn't a normal thing back then, as well. I feel like that was, was well, that risque. Risque. Well, it was. What happened was, I went to a semester of junior college, and then I took a semester off. And oh, yeah, okay. it was a little bit. It was a little bit off the beaten path, but you know, we, my best friend and I, assured our parents. You know, we both assured our parents. You know, we're going to get a college degree and everything. So. I, w I went on to a four-year university, got a college degree, and my programming then was to get a good job. And so I was out scouring to get a good job and sending resumes and everything, get a good job. And then after getting a good job, it was meet a girl, you know, get, you know, meet a girl. And I scoured looking for a girl, and I met a girl and, and got married because that's what I was supposed to do. And then after that, you buy a house because that's what I was supposed oh, yeah. to do and then start a family. That's what I was supposed to do. And I followed my programming exactly as I was taught. And it wasn't until about around age 38 that my reality of where my life really was, was colliding with this blueprint that I created. Mm. And so one of the things I've come to realize just in general, when people talk about midlife crisis and now, I, don't, I think they, they even have a term, it's called quarter life crisis for the younger generation, for the millennials and the Gen uh, Zers and whatever. Um, but in our generation, it was called midlife, which was right around turning 40. And I was in a marriage that wasn't very satisfying because I had no clue how to be in a marriage. Mm. I, and as much as I watched a lot of movies and watched my parents, I had no clue how to be a partner in a relationship. I was never really prepared for that. And I wasn't prepared for a lot of the responsibility. So when this reality collided with my blueprint, it was right at the time where my my now ex-wife and I decided to split up. And you had kids? And my world, what's that? You had kids at this point? Oh yeah, and had yeah, two kids. Two kids, yeah. Two kids. And so um, 
And I, I spent that first few years going, through, and, and not only did I was going through a divorce, I told my boss that I'm going through a divorce, and three weeks later, he laid me off of my quarter million dollar a year job. Ooh, I was making a quarter million dollars a year at the time. I was an insurance broker and he decides to basically lay me off or exactly what he did was he actually gave me a, a layoff over a six month period, if you will. And did you think and, like a promotion was like, were you, were you pretty feeling pretty confident in, in your spot at your career at I, that time? I, this came out of the blue because the month before it was like gung ho, gung ho, gung ho. And then all of a sudden, just a shift. So not only did I lose my job, I'm going through a divorce. And when I lost my job, it, it started, you know, it was affecting my, per, my identity. Yeah. Because my personal identity was wrapped up in my professional identity. So that just collapsed me on the inside. And I'm going through divorce, and the divorce began to get kind of nasty or, or contentious, if you will. Yeah. I, it's, it's and just, as I'm going I'm through this... At the same time, while we were splitting our assets and everything, and we had accumulated a seven-figure net worth, I mean, we each walked away with seven figures, the market crash happened in 2008, and I got pummeled. Mm. I mean, I was decimated. Here at one point, I lived in a $2.2 million home in a very high net worth neighborhood, had a quarter million dollar job, had a family, you know, I had a wife and children and everything, and now... I actually had to move back in with my parents oh, wow. at age, a little bit after 40. Yeah. You know, I have to um, say I lost my job two and a half years ago. And um, I actually, I sort of saw it coming because I was in advertising and we weren't getting any new clients and I hadn't been busy in a few weeks. So I even, I called up <clears throat> one of my best friends that morning and I was like, you know what, I think I'm getting laid off today. Yeah. And, and, you know, no one really be believes you when you say that, but she did. She could hear it in my voice, and I did. And even though I knew it was coming, and even though I knew it wasn't really about my skills because it was more things, I could not believe how much it took away my confidence. And yeah. it was such an ego hit. Um, and I, even when, it really wasn't even about me. So I, I can't even imagine... And, having parents of divorce and seeing people go through breakups. My dad and I constantly um, talk about how he's been through two divorces now that he's like, it's amazing how much the ego comes into it. He's like, sometimes I'm like, am I upset or am I just embarrassed that, that I have like another one sort of failed, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I yeah, I'm, I could imagine you at the, you know, it just made me think like I could imagine how much of your confidence and uh, was sort of like down on the floor. Well, what was interesting, it was almost like this perfect storm. It was three hurricanes colliding, yeah. you know, losing my job, going through divorce, losing my money. And there was so much shame associated with that that I really withdrew in. Now, what was interesting, what was going on in my personality at that time was since I was had filed for divorce, I decided, well, I'm going to go find another relationship. And at the time, Internet dating had just began to become popular. I mean, it started to really take off. And so I found myself addicted to online dating. Oh, and why I say addicted was it's this constant feeding of attention. You know, you send out an email, someone responds back, you get a dopamine hit, you get this feeling of, oh, someone likes me and you're interacting. And then you go out on a date and you have this fun interaction. 
And so I got addicted to the high of internet dating because mm. you have really instant access to a plethora of people that you wouldn't otherwise have in your daily life. Um, but what was so fascinating was, so you'll find this interesting. So my first year out of my divorce, I, I you know, never forget it. Went out, went out on a great date with a really nice woman, but something wasn't right. And then a few days later, I'd connect with someone else and meet a nice woman, have a great date and something wasn't right. And it happened again and again and again. I went on over a hundred internet dates my first year wow. after my divorce. Yeah. I mean, over a hundred different women. And so I wasn't forming any relationships with anyone, really. I was just in it for the first or second date, and I'd be on to the next one and the next one. And I did meet a woman, it was about nine months into my divorce, and it was interesting because when we met, met it was instant chemistry. There was a great connection. She was a successful executive for a pharmaceutical company. And then I basically, I think it was on our second date, I just laid it on the line. I go, I'm practically broke, and this is where I'm at. And she didn't seem to mind. Wow, great. <laughs> and so, because she had abundance, so she didn't come from that place of expectation. So she even treated for dates most of the time. Um, we went on for a three-month relationship, and then I hit a wall. Like, this is as far as I could go, because I was a train wreck. Yeah, let's get into that. Uh, we dated through the holidays. We, we met in like November, dated through the holidays for three months. And for Christmas, she gave me a box picture frame of rose-colored glasses. And I go, what's the significance of this? And she goes, I knew when I met you, I, was, I wore rose-colored glasses. Like she literally said, I know you're a mess. I know I'm getting into this mess and I know it's going to end. Oh, wow. <laughs> and to this day, 10 years, 10 plus years later, I still have it sitting on my, on my, um, my desk because she knew what she was getting into. She was that self-aware. Wow. And so by the, when we broke up or when we ended, I, I said, look, I'm a mess. And she goes, I know. <laughs> and we, we've still remained friends. She's gotten married and we've made friends for like 12 years. Yeah. And what, how do you, um, um, yeah. you know, when you hit rock bottom or you feel like a mess, like when you look back now, cause you've sort of gone yeah. through some of that stuff, where do you like, how do you sort of see what was really going on? Like what, what was hurting you the most in this or had affected you the most that, that, um, that you've been able to see from afar? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And thank you for asking because, as I look back now and connect the dots, if you will, found that Steve Jobs um, quote. At that, it was interesting because I told you I went on a hundred internet dates and I kept saying something's not right, something's not right, and I realized at some point that something wasn't right was me. So right at that time, it was around the time the movie The Secret came out. Yeah. I mean, I immediately resonated with it. I mean, everything about the law of attraction and how your your thoughts create your feelings and, you know, can dictate how your life, you know, operates, if you will. I was like, I began immersed with it. I then watched What the Bleep, I bought, I mean, I had Tony Robbins CDs. I started to become a personal development self-help junkie. And I just couldn't get my hands on enough content and material because I, I somehow gravitated towards it. And I can't tell you that it was like this conscious decision other than, Prior to getting married, I got into metaphysics for a brief period of time. So I had a little bit of awareness, and then I met my wife, and I kind of stopped going down that spiritual track, if you will. 
So when The Seeker came out, it was like, bam, I knew this was something I left behind. I needed to get back on track with it. And from that point on, I just started to immerse myself with personal development. I say personal development, self-help, and then spirituality. And it took me about another five years before I was in a place where I actually met a woman who, um, it was interesting. So I'm now living at my parents. I, I'm starting, I just turned the corner. I mean, having my parents support me yeah. was like going back to the nest, if you will, going back to home and kind of cocooning and rebuilding myself. And so I had this chance to rebuild and I'm working on the inside out. Oh, and at the same time, I decided to become a dating and relationship coach because <laughs> I had so much experience in the dating realm. I started to help women understand men in the dating realm that I decided to start a coaching business at that time, oh which was so far removed from where I went to college and what I learned after college and such. I decided to become a coach. I was literally coaching for Starbucks cards and $1 a minute phone calls. And at that time, I met a woman um, through Facebook, a friend. And so, and I was totally enamored with her. She was a, a therapist, a doctor. She had her own TV show. Uh, we had mutual friends. So when we connected, it was very friendly like. And what was interesting was I didn't think she'd ever go out with me. But I convinced her to go out with me, or at least go out on a friendship date is what I called it. And our first date, we went to a baby shower. We had mutual friends that were having, a, mutual friends of ours were having a baby, so I took her as my date. And I'll never forget, this. so the second time I saw her, so we had a great first date, had a great time, and I saw her again. And I went to her home, she invited me for drinks, and during the course of our conversation, I kept talking about my parents a lot. For some reason, I don't know why, but I did. And she asked me, like, she goes, do you live with your parents? Mm -hmm. Now, here I am, you know, mid-40s, talking to a woman who's successful, had her own TV show. She's on TV all the time because uh, she used to be guests on all the news networks. And I have to admit that I live with my parents. And I'm like scared shitless. I mean, I literally went white for about 10 seconds, but I owned it. And she goes, okay. And I asked her out again and she said, yes. Now what's interesting, if you heard her tell the story, she said, I never wanted to date you. Oh. <laughs> well, never is a, a, a harsh word, but she wasn't even in her consciousness that we'd be in relationship together. But we ended up forming a relationship and we were together well on and off for six years um what that did was it gave me a lot of confidence that i mm. felt accepted and appreciated and even respected by someone that i respected and she didn't judge me um she saw the deeper what maybe because she was a therapist she saw the deeper wound but she also saw that i wasn't a loser i just happened to have a circumstance that shifted me and I just was rebuilding my life. Yeah. And, and not in some, you know, bullshit way where a lot of people talk about rebuilding their lives. I was actually rebuilding my life because I was actually putting myself out there as a dating coach. Yeah. John, I have to ask, um, you know, with the, with the self-help and uh, yeah. the coaching and all that kind of stuff, it does, it definitely feels like it's very like, um, I, I'm not going to use the right word, like future folk, uh, like heading like let's take better steps forward 
And yes. you know, and then, but I wondered um, a lot of the time people look back at their childhood and their relationship with their parents and all that kind of stuff to also realize how they love and what relationships they end up being in. And it's interesting that you're also in your parents' home while yeah. you're sort of going through this stuff. Did you more, was it more natural for you to actually be like, just what are my positive steps forward rather than let's go back into the past and, and sort of like confront some maybe underlying, you know, things that are happening. I'm so glad you asked this question because, well, there's two things that were going on at that time. I was, I, when I started to really began to rebuild my life. So I kind of went through a crash for about three or four years and then it started to turn upward. So what, one of the mottos that I had was I was, uh, was the quote by Walt Disney. And that is one of his quotes is keep moving forward. Mm. And for whatever reason, that really stuck with me. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. In other words, just one baby step at a time. Just you can get out of this, you know, the, the pit just one step at a time. So moving forward. What was interesting, though, dating a therapist was she was highly familiar with childhood wounds. Mm. And how that can affect us as adults, how our limiting, our negative beliefs and our, our, our negative patterns and limiting beliefs are often stem from childhood. So what was interesting was not only was I in relationship, I was getting a lot of therapy. Yeah. And we were also going to mutual workshops together. We were going to inner child workshops together. We were we actually went to Tony Robbins together. We did lots of things together. And I began to learn that what a lot of the aspects of my personality was a real reflection of what happened in my childhood. But having that awareness really shifted big time my ability to heal, my ability to get out of this bottomless pit, if you will, was the awareness that while things happened in my childhood that my parents never intended to directly affect me, on an emotional level. Now that I have this awareness, I no longer had to blame them for how I am. I can recognize that what happened, they did the best they could and I could take control. I could take ownership of my experience going forward. Do you, would you, do you mind if we ask if there, if for some, like what was some of the pieces of the childhood that you were sort of grappling with or, or working through? Well, you know, I'll, I'll share one thing. So my mother, and there was a, there's an irony here. So my mother, whenever there was conflict in the home, whether it was my father or one of my siblings and I, she would emotionally shut down. Mm. And she would emotionally shut down for 72 hours. I mean, it literally, you could, you could, you could, you know, put it on your clock if you watch, if you will. She literally, when she was, whenever there was you know, like friction, she would shut down emotionally. I mean, she wouldn't talk. She would be very grumpy and everything. And the irony is the girlfriend that I picked would do the same thing. Oh, interesting. She would shut down. Amazing. I mean, literally completely emotionally shut down. She wouldn't take 72 hours. She was more of a 36 hour, but that triggered my childhood. Anytime yeah. my girlfriend shut down, that triggered my childhood. When I became aware that that was my childhood and her experience is different, you know, it wasn't, I couldn't relate the two. At first I did because my little kid, when my girlfriend shut down, it reminded me of my mom shutting down. Yeah. Um, by having that awareness now, 
it's shifted and saying, okay, she's just in her space. She'll, you know, I'll just roast marshmallows outside the cave waiting for her to come out. And sure enough, she'd come out in 36 hours. And after a while, I just became accustomed to it. But that triggered my childhood. One of the other things that happened in my childhood that I might be of value to your, to your audience was when I was in third grade, I was studying for a math test. And I studied really hard, really hard, really hard. And I got 100% on a test where the other students were getting 70%. And my teacher rummaged through my desk and found my practice. My, my father helped me create a spreadsheet to help me my multiplication tables. And she found it in my desk and she waves it in front of the class saying, you're a cheater. You're oh. stupid. And now I'm telling you this story the way I remember it. It might be completely different than what actually happened. I'm now aware that this story that I've been carrying my whole life is that I'm stupid. And that has been a story I've carried with me ever since third grade, that I'm not smart. And it directly affected how I operate as an adult, because I literally even communicating with you, I still feel this, I'm not confident, I'm not very smart, I'm not articulate. That's the programming that runs in my head. Yeah, I'm aware of it, but it hasn't gone away completely. But I certainly have it under control. If, when I say under control, it doesn't affect me. Right. As much as it did in the past. Yeah. And but those are childhood wounds that happened. That one was one my parent, you know, first one was my mom didn't do anything to me. My The teacher probably really didn't do anything to me. But these were the stories I created that affected me as an adult. Oh, I know. They're extremely powerful. It's amazing. And you don't, I also think, you know, parents have this thing of like wanting to protect their child and to, you know, make sure they have a great life. You, you could never stop these moments from happening when you're a kid um, no. because you don't know what's going to be the thing that cements and what, you know, what doesn't. Um, yeah, but it molds who our personality yeah. is. And so having the awareness and going through, um, and I did a program called the Hoffman Institute, which is a seven-day full immersion inner child workshop where you dig deep into those wounds that happened at childhood. And when you say I mean, inner child, that is your, it's pretty literal, right? The inner child inside. Of oh, you. yeah. It's very literal. It's a seven-day immersion into, well, just to give you an example, to, to complete their questionnaire to be invited to it takes 12 hours to complete. Oh, wow. It's an extensive look at your childhood, both who your, uh, who your parents were, your surrogate parents, people that were involved in your life, and you're, you're picking apart lots of pieces of your past to gain clarity on how to operate from a place of confidence, a place of clarity, a place of strength as an adult. Yeah, and so... While you're sort of doing all this, you're also a parent yourself with two, yes. you know, two boys, right? And going through yes. this um, divorce. What was also going through your mind of like how, you know, how do I parent through through this, um, you know, yeah, dramatic time? Well, I'll be candid with you. I was very blessed to have uh, the mother of my children, who was really a great mom. She did the heavy lifting. Because I, when I lost my job, I mean, that, I mean, you might as well put, well, let's put it to you this way. I went through a period of about a year where I went to bed wishing I didn't wake up. Yeah. I literally would, I lived on the, I had an ocean view at the time before I moved in with my folks. I'd close the curtains, curl up in a ball and just wish 
I didn't wake up. Yeah. So I wasn't a very good parent for about the first five years after the divorce. I was very selfish. Um, um, would they come stay not, with you or, or were they mainly no, they with you? They would stay with me, but it was always kind of a chore in a way. For and you or for them? For me. Yeah. Because it was an obligation yeah. and I wanted to shut down from everything. Now, that wasn't fair to them by any stretch of the means. And, and, and in retrospect, I mean, if I could go back in time, I would love to change that mm. person. Just where person you were at at that time, right? But at that time, I was very you know, I don't want to say egotistical, but I was so trapped in my, my trauma because in a way losing my job was a PTSD. Yeah. I was so trapped in my trauma that I had nothing to give to my children. Um, Jonathan, now I, I say this yeah. was when I began the personal development and rebuilding myself from the inside out, I then began to give a lot to my children. And so I'd say the first five years after the divorce, there was nothing to give. And then I slowly began giving a ton to my children afterwards. Did you have and to I'm rebuild about that? My heart. Yeah. Did you have to sort of rebuild that relationship? Um, you know, children, you know, it's interesting when I, when I think they were five and eight when we filed for divorce and you know, when we told them, they're like, yeah, so what everyone else in our yeah, school yeah. was divorced. So, I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal to them. And you know, to kids, they don't have that same, they're, they're very resilient. And, and thankfully, despite some of the friction between my ex and I, my ex and I, she's a great parent. She, like I said, she did the heavy lifting. I did what I could. Most of the time we kept our fighting to ourselves. And, and little by little, I began to be more involved in their life. Um, once I began to heal my life. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I am, um... I don't want to stereotype. I also know, you know, you're on the edge of the baby boomers as well, where there was a, a pretty, I am totally stereotyping. So everyone be aware that that's what I'm doing. Um, but you know, the mother really was the main caregiver of the children yes. and the father with the breadwinners and, you know, you know, brought provided. And so it's interesting how some, um, I remember when my parents got divorced, I was actually really surprised my dad, stuck around I just presumed he would he would skedaddle and we yeah. we went week 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 and um okay yeah and I just remember though I was like I remember just being a kid being like oh that's not what I'm that's not normally what I see in the movies like the, the dad's on the the dad's like on a Saturday night you know and doesn't have a couch yet and you have takeout yeah. and watch movies you know so um did you think that sort of also like played a little part of like society at that time where um, the, there wasn't maybe as much responsibility on a dad around fatherhood or, or am I just, you know, playing? Well, back a movie at that scene? time we were, I just, I remember, well, you know, I think my ex and I kind of adopted that Wednesday and every other weekend kind of arrangement, arrangement which yeah. was the popular one up until about the time we got divorced. It really began to shift at that time to a 50, 50 type of arrangements. Yeah. Right around that time in the um, um, mid, I'd say the early 2000s. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, it just started. And certainly now, 10, 15 years later, I mean, it's very, very common that it's 50-50 in, in many cases. So, But we were kind of the old school because yeah. we were baby. So, yeah. um, so I at least adhered to that, if you will. And I say the word adhered because I... 
I just wasn't in a capacity to give to my kids. It wasn't fair to them, but, and I'm just grateful that they had a mom that had um, a circumstance that allowed her to give a lot in that particular But it also sounds like you were in a much healthier place when they started to spend more time with you as well, which is always. Yes. And it was my relationship with my girlfriend that really helped me mend my relationship with my ex-wife and mend my relationship with my children because she was a therapist she was a marriage and family therapist so she guided me along the way and i i mean like to this day i'm so grateful for that encouragement that i had that in a partner that helped help nurture me in with my relationship with my children yeah so you're my ex-wife yeah so you're getting stronger and now you've got all these tools right that you've sort of done and then something absolutely horrific uh, happens yeah so so obviously we're going to be talking about my 19 year old son who passed away and for which was um 16 months ago today or yesterday i should say um what was so i'm I'm gonna yeah you you do whatever you Yes. Oh, no, no. It's just, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit discombobulated. So um, when I got the phone call from my ex that, I mean, she was sobbing and crying and she said, the paramedics are here. I, I immediately knew something was wrong. And But let me give you some backstory. Three months before my son passed away, he had a seizure out of the blue. And... Um, and we're like, wow. And then so he, he led us to believe that it was something to do with something that he took called whippets. And like this was a one-time event. And then exactly a month later, uh, he had another seizure. And it was, the, it was due to a withdrawal of a drug. There's a, there's a side effect of certain drugs that can cause this. So he had a second seizure. And um, minor seizures, but still seizure nonetheless. And then we were traveling a month before he passed away and had another seizure while we were at the airport. So I'm already on a heightened sense of, of, um, of fear, if you will. And we had taken him to a neurologist and we were putting him on medications and stuff like that. Um, so when I got the phone call, my first reaction was, and I'm, this is hard for me to admit this. I don't think I've admitted this publicly. I've certainly told some of my friends that there was a part of me that wished he was gone because I had this fear that he was going to be a vegetable. I'm talking about one oh, thought right. that crossed no, my mind. Yeah. No, when you, know? yes. And I was like, I literally, I, you know, when I heard, I, I was, I was in such kind of shock at the moment that I went and got dressed. I took a shower, got dressed. I mean, I left the home within 15 minutes, but I just didn't rush out the door like you might see in a movie or something in my pajamas. Um, but my first thought was, and at that moment, I didn't know he had passed away. I just knew that paramedics were there. Um, I had this thought, like, I, for his sake, I hope he's gone. And I mean, I, I hate. They say the word hate. I hate myself for thinking that. Like, why Why would I think such a thing? But there was this more, I thought that as a way, I thought that because I just didn't want him to suffer. Right. You know, so I felt like death is better than suffering. Because you knew it was on a level where it was really bad, basically. Yes. Right? So it was either like there's going to be uh, forever um, damage 
um, yes. or that maybe I was more concerned like he'd be in a car driving and he'd wipe out a school bus, you know, because oh, he was having car. seizures and that means yeah, that you lose and so, yeah. and he was actually on a suspended license, but he was also being a little irresponsible and such. So, um, cause he's a kid, he, he's invincible yes. in his mind. He's yeah. invincible. He doesn't even witness the seizure itself cause he has no memory of it. So, um, I called her while I was driving and I got the news he had passed away. And for the most part, I was relatively calm. Um, I, I, I feel like, I guess I was in a sense of shock. So, I mean, it, you know, it just, it kind of manifested in calm. It wasn't hysterical or anything like that. I was relatively calm. I went to her home and, um, Anytime there's a death of a child, the police are called and, and that sort of thing. So we had to wait five hours to actually see his body. I mean, to see him before the, the coroners took him away. So that was really excruciating to have to wait that long. Um, I'm reluctant. To, well, I'm going to share. I haven't made this public yet. So whatever, Jonathan, what, I, had to, I don't want you to all feel like you have to share something that you're not ready to share. So, um, well, I, I just, I, you know, what? I only for his, you know, for his privacy, I don't want to share the exact details of what caused his death. Yeah. Uh, it was accidental. Um, so I, I just don't want to get into the particulars, but the way I rationalized his passing was his life was going to be worse. So in a way, this is the gentler way of, of transitioning. That's how I rationalize it. Um, but I made a choice. Well, two things happened. So the day after he passed away, I was walking back into my place. And where I live, there's this garden with this waterfall, and it's a beautiful landscaping and such. And I saw this yellow butterfly, and it just kept following me. I mean, it was, I mean, it was like weird. I'd never seen butterflies before, but this yellow butterfly is following me. And the next day I'm leaving my place and all of a sudden out of the blue, this yellow butterfly starts following me out of my place. And then the next day, and I live on the third floor of a, of a condo complex, all of a sudden on my balcony, this yellow butterfly is like right there hovering over my home. And I'm like, holy, and I know it's him. Mm. Like that is him speaking to me. And so at that moment, I said, wow, I'm really getting a strong, like he is really strongly giving me a message. And I made the choice. I said, I have a, I'm going to choose to grieve with love. I said those words out loud. I'm going to grieve with love, which means he, I know he would never want me to suffer. Right. I know he, there's no way on this earth he would ever want me to feel sad about his passing. And so grieving with love is saying, I'm not going to choose suffering as my choice of grieving. Um, now, that's not to say I'm not sad. And no. earlier this morning, even I, you know, a memory popped up and 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 I, you know, and actually whenever I see a, a woman or whenever I see a parent, I should say, with their adult, you know, like a 19 year old son, it triggers me. And I saw a picture of one and then I saw his picture and I was melancholy for a good five, 10 minutes today. And I was able to go, okay, the emotion went in and now I let the emotion go out because I'm going to grieve with love. 
And that was a conscious choice I made. And so while I've done all the anger and denial and all that kind of stuff that they talk about, I also, there's one thing missing in that chart, you know, whatever right. chart that is about grief and loss and everything is like choosing love. And so it actually became the catalyst for um, a book I wrote as well. So the experience and, and, and Connor visits me all the time in a variety of different ways. That's your I, son? I, that, by the way, that's a picture of him <laughs> over there. <That's> adorable. <laughs> yeah. You, he looks and, just uh, like you. Brother, and I. Uh, so, um, I have just, a, I, what I came to realize was I have a different relationship with him. I don't have a relationship with his mortal body, but I have a relationship with him that isn't ever going to go away. And so I, I still have his phone number and I, on my phone and I text him every couple, three or four or five or six days just saying, I, I mean, I probably have 200 text messages since he passed away. Um, just like, Hey buddy, thinking of you or telling a story or something like that. Um, which I heard Elizabeth Gilbert does with her, her partner that passed away. She still does that. Yeah, so, I think you, you, you also see it on people's Facebook walls. I think it's a yeah. very therapeutic, um, behavior that we've all sort of, uh, well, it's kind of a unique thing that you would have had before, you know, like, Oh, but here's the funny thing. So, so it was right around the anniversary of his passing. So, um, so his mom had his cell phone number on a family plan and I would text and, you know, there was, there would be no, obviously no message back. And then one day I saw the message said red oh. and I'm like, fuck me. Oops. Can I say that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say whatever you want. I was like, holy shit. So I'm like, and I have this, and I wrote back and I go, is that really you? <laughs> well, and then it occurred to me, I called my ex up and I said, did you by any chance, you know, um, stop the, yeah. stop the plan yeah. for his number. And she goes, yeah. So it occurred to me, someone else is reading this oh. that because that number has been sold. So then I politely wrote a, like a long message, uh, telling what happened and you know, and what I've been doing, but they didn't respond back. And I was, I thought I was as, as compassionate as I could right. be because I'm invading on someone's privacy. And, um, but they didn't respond back. And then after that, I said, fuck it. I'm still sending the sending message. It, yeah. <laughs> and, and they probably blocked my number. So, cause it doesn't show red anymore. But when I got that, I'm like, Oh my God, he's reading my messages. Oh my so, gosh. um, it's, it's forever changed me in ways I can't describe because I thought the worst thing that was ever going to happen in my life once the minute both my boys were born was something happening to them. That to me was going to be the, you know, the tragedy that would take me down the rabbit hole and I'd never return. And what's interesting is I didn't go down the rabbit hole of despair. And were you I, I mean, I was sad to? and believe, pardon me. Were you tempted to, you know, well, first off, I was surrounded by so much love. I mean, you like when I did my Facebook post about him, I had over a thousand comments, two or three thousand likes. I mean, I was getting messages from people. There was so much love coming my way that it's almost impossible if you're allowing it in, which I did. I right. just said, I'm going to allow this in. And, um, and it really inspired me as I shared to write the book, because as I look back now, 
I wrote the book called What the Heck is Self-Love Anyway? Because I realized my journey started well before he passing away. It really goes back to when I hit rock bottom. Right. And began a practice of shoring up who I am on the inside. So by the time he passed away, I was already, I was in my sovereignty. I was in my, I, I, I was, I put together a beautiful blanket of self-love. And I use the word blanket of self-love because when I did the Hoffman process, one of which was 12 months before he passed away, literally to the day, I remember walking out of there. I go, this is what it feels like to feel self-love. So when I got a taste of what it feels like to love yourself, and I don't mean that in a narcissistic way, and I don't mean that in a self-care way, like, you know, getting manicures. and. Their, How does that feel? Know. What does huh? what does loving yourself feel like? Blanket of self-love is such an acceptance of who you are. And Was it freeing? Was it like, did it make you feel lighter? Like what, what sort of, could you? One of the main things I got out of that experience was I most, I recognize that throughout my life, I compared myself to others. Mm. And what I was able to release is comparison. When I could let go of comparing myself to anyone else, I then looked at the mirror and said, who am I? Who is Jonathan Aslake? And then I began to do a deeper dive into self-discovery. So the year before he passed, I was doing even a deeper dive on who am I really? And so by the time I got to this event, I already had like, I I call it a vaccination to chaos. Mm -hmm. The chaos that was about to erupt didn't happen because I already took a multivitamin. I took my medicine well before, and I'd been doing it for 15 years prior. Yeah. And so... Jonathan, I'm just curious. So you say that, so you had sort of this vaccination. What was happening to even maybe your your other son, Colin, and the other people in your life? I, I understand you have this blanket of love surrounding you. Are... Are they going through sort of grief in a similar way and or benefiting from your way of sort of handling this? I'm just curious. So first off, my ex and I, I'm going to think about my ex in particular because um, she's in a relationship with someone. She lives with someone. She's been, they've been together for 10 years, but with her and I, we were the only two that could really feel this experience, even though he had my, my son, for all intents and purposes, had a stepdad. Both my boys did, with um, with Adam, her partner. Um, we both consoled each other because we both recognized and accepted that his trajectory was probably going to be one of suffering. Right. And so this is the so we both were able to accept that piece. Um, with his, and so. And, and yet, I can't even imagine for a mom, mm. for a woman who carries a child for nine months, because she's known him nine months longer than me, or 10 months, I guess, however long that it is, and boom. Uh, <laughs> she's known him longer. She has a, and, and he lived with her of the true pain and suffering she went through. I, I can't even begin to think of what it was going on on her inside. And I can't know, I mean, I don't believe she had a personal development, self-help practice, spiritual practice like myself. Um, 
but I know as a mother, just alone, it's yeah. probably. I, I'm not trying to weight the tragedy. It's any more from a from a man to a woman, and but I I do believe, in all fairness, you know, she had the harder journey yeah. to navigate this, um, and. And so all I could do, we could do is comfort each other. And when we talk, we'd, we'd end up talking for like three or four hours every couple, three or four days. We'd go down memory lane and that sort of thing. And we'd cry for an hour and get back and tell a story. And it was mostly regaling stories that brought us joy. But we'd still feel despair, too. Um, I did my best to be supportive and be, you know, hold the weight. I, I think on a... On a spiritual level, I held space for my family on an, or it's not a spiritual level, on an energetic level. Yeah. I held the space because I was in my, my sovereignty, if you will. With my, with his brother or my uh, oldest son, you know, it's interesting because he's navigated his emotions in a variety of different ways. Thankfully, he and I have always had a, a level of communication that is probably more so than a lot of parents with their children. I've always yeah. had a, we've always had a two-way street relationship. I loved, I loved in your um, introduction where you make the comment about, of, like, of course you love your children, but you, you say, I like you. Oh, well, thank you. So I, I, I forgot about that. that. Well, you know, it's interesting because I hated being a parent. <laughs> I mean, when I say hate, I don't, I mean, I, I didn't like, the vulnerability that unconditional love puts on you. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Unconditional love is fucking torture. Yeah. It is, you know, worrying about would they drown in the pool? Would they get kidnapped? Would this happen? Will they get good grades? Will they be bullied in school? That responsibility, and I that's which comes with unconditional love, was daunting to me. Um, what was interesting, though, was because I wasn't really their parent, their mother was their parent. I was almost like an uncle in a way. Um, and I, I, I characterize it like that because I didn't have them every week and all that sort of thing. I mean, it was more of a part-time dad. Was we got to spend time at a different level. Yeah. You didn't have so, to hassle them to do their homework every night. Yeah, I never had that responsibility. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Aaron. <laughs> um I mean, I'd take it all back in a second if I could go back in time and I'd bust my ass off from that day one if I could go back. But um, what happened was I developed a friendship with my boys. Yeah. And when I say friendship, I mean, I was still their dad, but I developed an interpersonal relationship with them. Let me backtrack. I said friendship. I developed an interpersonal relationship with them. I talked to them about their feelings constantly. But was that I also because you annoyed. were learning to talk about your feelings as well? As yeah, I mean, this is what I did for a living. I talked to women about their feelings. I talked about feelings. I talked about feelings. I'm going to workshops. I mean, I made them listen to Tony Robbins. I made them listen to Abraham Hicks. I made were them they like, TV. enough, Dad, we get it with the feelings. Yeah. And yet, they would open up to me. Yeah. More so than they would their mom. In a way, I had a direct line to what was going on inside of them than their mother did. Um, because I had the tools. I had the resources. I had the, you know, and I had the perseverance. So I, I know a lot of parents that love their children, but they don't like them. I like my boys. Mm -hmm. I like who they are. So um, I forgot what got us on that no, track. That's but, I, I um, mean, I did want to go back to something you said around... Um, letting go of comparison 
Was it comparison yeah. you said? Comparisons, yes. Yeah, because I, I think sometimes with death or with um, big moments that happen in life is that you do look to others of what, what was stereotypical with other people to sort of maybe guide how you heal. Like, you know, even like with a divorce of like some people will be like, all right, in one year it's good to then, you know, be in another relationship or same with someone passing to be like, I think it's, you know, fine that you crash on the floor for three months, but then afterwards you've got to get up. There's a, there is, you know, a comparison, but I could imagine how freeing that would be to not to have gone through this process and not, at all put that weight on you that you should do what everyone else, the stereotypical way to get through it. So it's interesting because right after he passed away, I mean, I had people wanting me to join grief groups and, you know, on Facebook and different outlets and stuff. And people were sending me videos on grief and I'll be honest with you. Not that I'd lie to you. uh, (laughs) I, 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 I hated all of that. I, first off, I didn't like someone telling me how I should grieve. Oh, yeah. I then went into grief groups, and there is nothing but suffering going on in there. I mean, just, and I, and I just didn't want to get sucked into the suffering. I mean, look, at, I have a great deal of compassion for anyone who's lost a child. But there's this almost, in some of these grief groups, for me anyway, I'm only speaking for myself. For others, they might get tons of, of, of feeling, you know, um, nurtured and, and, and solace and whatnot, I felt it as such a weight because I realized that my journey with Connor now going forward in grief is just between him and me. That's it. It's just between him and me. This is my new relationship with him, and my grief is, a re- is just a reflection of he and I. So when I hear other people's stories you know, shared to me, I almost wanted to repel it because I'm like, no, let me have my experience. Yeah. I don't need to learn how someone else went through this, at least for me. Yes. Yeah. For other people, this can bring, I know my, and I shot videos about this. And for some people it brought them a great deal of joy, me sharing a different perspective. Right. And so this was just my choice of how I perceived and wanted to navigate uh, his passing. And so when everyone else was like sending me stuff, I'm like, I mean, I was being polite and thanking them. And under my breath, I'm like, you don't, please don't do this. Yeah. yeah. And so it, I sort of coming up to, um, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but there's two things yeah. I'd love to, to touch on. I do want to just go back to this um, grieving with love or using, you know, yeah. seeing it through love. Because I think love, as we, Grace and I, are constantly, you know, <laughs> grappling with, is love is extremely broad um, or very specific, <laughs> you know, no, depending how you want to look at it. And I, I would love, I know it sounds weird, but I would love an example, if you wouldn't mind, of like, say you woke up one morning and, y- you know, you, you, remem- you have a memory or something and, and it does really, it, it hits on a, it hits on, a, on an emotional chord and you sort of go, you start to maybe fall a little bit into like, why did this happen to me? Or why did I lose my boy? Or something like that. Um, what, what would then, what would be that voice in your head to then sort of go through more the love channel than the, than the maybe the more, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say suffering, um, but maybe more the, um, I don't know if victim's the right word either. I don't want to put a word yeah. on it. 
um, but how? What's the love approach to to some someone that feels like it could that it could bring you down for a while? So, or or a different. If if my example is not not the way you would. No, what, what what occurred to me was I, I've observed other people who are in victim mode of this this type of experience, and and first off. I'm not a victim here. Nothing happened to me. Okay. I, and that was the first thing I said to myself, well, it hasn't happened. It happened to him. I mean, he was, you know, he's the one who lost his life. And I say that with a little bit of, of, of a smile is, you know, like that's his journey, right? That was his journey. And so when I did his eulogy, I said, what's fascinating was the year before he passed away, he graduated high school, but he didn't want to go off to college. There's kind of an irony. His brother, college magna cum laude, double major. I mean, the Stepford kid of kids, right? Yeah. And Connor struggled with reading and writing. He struggled in school. And that wasn't going to be, school wasn't his vocation, you know, wasn't his path. It, it's funny how you get bookends for children, uh, at least in my particular no, case. No, in so, my and my sister and I as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, it, make, it makes no sense to me how they can come from the same womb and everything. Anyway, um, unless he's someone else's kid, but <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, uh, Just for everyone listening, there's a beautiful picture of him behind you, and you two look, I exactly mean, exactly the same. The same. Yeah. Oh, this one? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I should have worn his shirt. I normally every some every once in a while I wear that shirt that he's wearing when I do interviews. I wear his shirt. So, um, where was I going with this? Oh, so the eulogy. So the year the year before he passed away, he said, "I don't want to go to college." He goes, "Will you give?" He said to his mom and I, "Will you give me one year to figure out my life?" In other words, I want to be able to stay at home, kind of experience life without any pressure. I said, "Fine, absolutely." He passed away one year and three days later. Uh. And so as I thought back, I go on some level, his spirit knew he was here for a short documentary. And his last year, he lived all out. I mean, he did crazy shenanigans. <laughs> stuff. I mean, he was a rebel personality and he did some bizarre things like he and one of his friends decided to start a YouTube channel going into slums and videotaping drug addicts oh, wow. with their smartphone. I mean, here's a 18-year-old boy going up to like slum areas. I mean, and by the way, not just an 18-year-old boy, a skinny white kid from a rich neighborhood. Yeah. But he was unafraid. He was so unafraid. He had this, he had this air of invincibility about mm. him. He had this thing about no one could fuck with his chi. In fact, it's one of the chapters in my book. Yeah. Um, so he just had this air about him. But and I also believe that his spirit knew he was here for a short while. So I just have come to realize that my relationship with him is different. So I can choose love. And you, you said it earlier. You know, love is this word that means so much and be so specific and everything else. And yet it is such a powerful word when we begin to say it. Or let me reframe that. When I begin to say it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what occurs to me is I lived a big chunk of my life with ever out that word really uttered on a regular basis oh, yeah. in my consciousness. So now I'm constantly saying the word love. 
as a way to infuse love into myself. Yeah. Kind of like the secret, it's, right? You put out what you, you want to, to come yeah, in, right? I, it occurs to me that the average person probably doesn't even think of the word love. No, I, that's hard for me because we talk about all the time, but yes, but I hear you. No, but what I mean is on a regular basis, are you actually thinking or saying the words out loud? I mean, really saying it throughout the day. No, no. We might be doing loving acts, but the actual infusion of the word, let that word immerse yourself. Let it be that blanket I talk about. Just imagine, I actually invite my clients always just to imagine love and just as a blanket and just... Start to visualize that for yourself because it literally is the armor to everything negative that can happen in your life. Yeah. I don't like armor. That's, that's probably not the right choice, but because I don't want, that sounds like a negative. It's like you're pushing away, but it's really an infusion Mm -hmm. of, of inner peace, if you will. So from, from this place though, so now you've written this book and it's funny because it's, I would think that if someone was listening to this podcast, they may be like, oh, maybe it's a book about healing of, of grief, but it, it, it truly isn't. It's no. more about, will you take it away? <laughs> well, you know, originally I started to write it because I'm a dating and relationship coach. And, and I say that dating and relationships trigger the number one emotional health issue, at least here in the U.S. Um, and that is a lack of self-worth. Oh, so, yeah, I, wow. It, there's no other instrument like dating that can trigger someone's lack of self-worth. Oh, yeah. You're talking to two single gals oh. in New York City. Boy, do we know. Yeah. So, so, so the reason why people are, mis- you know, have, you know, not, not that they have miserable, one miserable relationships. The reason why most people have miserable relationships is they don't know how to communicate effectively men and women. And I'm going to say <laughs> women are just as bad as men, even though they think they own the hierarchy to communication. Um, just because you can talk about your feelings doesn't mean you articulate them in a way that we can hear that lady. Yeah. So, um, so with that said though, is that the need to be in a relationship comes from a lack of loving oneself. But what stops you, you from being in a relationship is also the lack of loving yourself. Is that, is that, What's that? Of, well, is it, sorry, I thought you were going somewhere else, but this idea of like needing to be in a relationship is from what you said, the lack of self-worth. But I also find that that is also the barrier to get you into a good relationship as well. well. Because we're talking about need. It's one thing to desire a relationship, but if it's actually coming from a need, then you're already setting yourself up for failure. I mean, you're already set up for failure because the first relationship that matters most is the relationship with oneself. So it's interesting because I was just talking to a friend about loving oneself and they were talking about her children. And I go, do you love your children? She goes, of course I do. And I go, well, how do you know you love your children? And she started to rattle off all of these experiences of how she loved on her child or children. And I said, okay, do the same thing for yourself. Recite all the experiences of how you've loved on yourself. And she was a deer in the headlights. Yeah. She couldn't think of one thing. And again, I'm not talking about self-care. I don't mean massages or those things we take care of ourselves. I'm talking about how do you really love on yourself? So I gave an example of something that happened to me last Monday. I threw my back out exercising. 
I mean, and I, and I literally, I had to walk, I walked to the gym and I was walking home and I was like this hunchback walking home. And I curled up in bed after taking some muscle relaxers and I go, wow, what an interesting way to choose to love myself. I created a circumstance where I actually had to be in my own sovereignty. And I said, wow, I created this. I created this so I could create an opportunity to love myself. Okay, how am I going to love myself? Uh, I live in California, so we smoke pot. Um, that was a joke. Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, I was like, we were like, yeah, yeah that makes that makes <laughs> yeah, sense. No, I mean, I did. No, I mean, I got You're legally I, allowed I, uh, to say that, but yeah, actually, I took yeah. an edible. <laughs> but I just curled up and just saying, "Wow!" I just kept saying, "Just I love myself." I kept saying it over and over. You know, healing my back as a way of just recognizing that this was a way that my body was saying. Hey, you're not loving on yourself, so I'm going to remind you to love on yourself. And so I chose to keep saying it over and over again. I know it sounds corny. A lot of people think this is bullshit and woo-woo, but I'm telling you, it works. Yeah. It works if you're because you have it. Here's the thing: I can look at life like two people, Tigger or Eeyore. <laughs> Eeyore, life is works against me. They're all out to get me. You know, it's not my fault, all this stuff. You know, they're pointing the finger at everyone else. Or Tigger just bounces around and says, I'm going to have a good time because he's in perpetual love. Yeah. He's not blaming anybody for anything. Yeah. It's... I choose Tigger. Yeah. And it works for me. I think I'm stuck in the middle. <laughs> Are you? Well, we haven't gotten into judgments and resentments <laughs> and guilt because those are the other aspects of, of healing into self-love. So, but that's another conversation. So if, if um, the listeners were wondering kind of who you designed, you know, wrote this book for, is it really hmm. anyone that really just finds that they're, they're needing to, um, you know, gain a little bit more of self-worth and, and self-love? Well, I think self-love has become a popular term and late. And it's interesting because I started to use it about four years, five years ago. And, and maybe it wasn't in my consciousness before that, but I've noticed that even, uh, wasn't, uh, oh God, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger married to? Uh, Maria Shriver talked about it on one of her episodes in one of her programs and it's becoming a popular term. So at first, when I wrote the book, I wanted to just go, what the heck is self-love anyway? Cause, mm. And really, I, to share with your audience, it's really the it's self-worth, self-reliance, self-confidence, self-esteem. It's all those self-words wrapped up into one word, love. And the book is for anyone and everyone that wants to end their inner suffering. Mm. If there is any remote inner suffering going on, then my book is, is, and let me just say this, it's a basic read. It's a simple read. It's not this, like one of my favorite books is The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Now, and that actually was the, the, the kind of the model I wrote this book, but his is deep stuff. I mean, it's real deep stuff. And I mean, I could read two pages and go, wow, that's all I could take today. I wanted... A, an untethered soul light version. So my my book is really the cat is the idea is to just awaken a person enough to go, 
how am I going to begin a personal development practice if I don't have one? And I outlined the end of the book how I went through this journey. And if you already have a personal development practice, then start telling more people to do this. Right. Because when we as a planet or as, you know, when we as individuals keep spreading, I'll call it this gospel of loving oneself, it actually can permeate into everyone's life because we are all interconnected. Oh, yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been wonderful. And, and, and we will um, let you know, it'll probably be like a month or two before we, we push um, this live and we can't wait to promote the book. And it's been a pleasure. Oh. And, and thank you for sharing, you. to going into some of the um, oh, you know, parts. We this appreciate. is the first time I've gone this deep with anyone. So thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to share my experience. And I hope for those listening that they get some value out of it. And I hope that there's a link. I'm sure there'll be a link somewhere where they can, I'm going to be giving away a gift, which will be a couple chapters of my book. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So, and that's on the link, right? Over. Yes. No, we've got it. Yes. We've, we've got it and we will, we will keep okay. it with all the promo. Okay. okay great. But thank, thank you, you so much. much. You. Have a lovely day. Thank you. You too. Right, Love you both. Thanks so much. Our program is produced and edited by Essie Zarr and myself, Grace Taylor, in Brooklyn, New York, with sound editing and original music by Jimmy Linville. Each episode features designs and illustrations by Nancy Pappas. As always, a special thanks to our guests for coming on and sharing their stories. Check out the show on Instagram or on our website at essiezarroflove.com.